Hello, street people. This is Pat. I wanted to record a little preamble to this week's sermon message so that if you weren't there, you could have some perspective as to what actually happened. We had an amazing healing miracle that the Lord performed in our service on Sunday, and you'll hear the testimony in a couple of different places, but we wanted to make sure you heard both so that you could really get a sense for um, what the Lord did in the meeting, and it can increase your faith and really get you excited about praying for healing and any other kind of need that a person might have. So quick background, a week ago Sunday, so seven days prior to yesterday's meeting, Mike Taylor on his way to work at the airport had uh, hit some black ice and literally rolled his truck over four times and had to be extracted by the rescue teams and then uh, obviously rushed to the hospital. God protected him. He was out of the hospital within about 24 hours, I think. But he came to church yesterday literally so sore and so uh, bent up in his body that he couldn't hardly walk very well. And uh, he got prayer. And just during the course of the prayer in our worship time, he could literally feel his body being healed. He felt heat come to different places, and you'll hear him say, it's all gone. And that means that he literally could feel or sense no more symptoms from the pain and the discomfort that he'd had from the accident. So that's the quick preamble. Make sure you enjoy the testimony and enjoy the awesome word that uh, we got from Kirk Rundell. We love you. God bless you all. Have a great week. Hey, just, um, I want Mike, I want you to just say what you just told me. It's all gone. It's amazing. I can't believe it. Now, now, lest you think this is a flaky guy that you're hearing from, his company entrusts him with the lives of many, many people and commercial airliners. I want Mike to share what just happened to him just now. Not at the hospital, but just now. Uh, Pat came over and started uh, praying for me. And uh, at first I had like a warm sensation in my hand. And then all of a sudden my bones literally started cracking in my back. Um, it was weird. And they, they, it was like one cracked and then a, like a tingling. And then another cracked, and the tingling went away. It was really weird. And then um, through here, it was like my, my muscles were really strained, and they became warm, and then I could move them. It was... No, he was just... Hold, I, he put his finger in my hand and told me to squeeze it, and he just prayed. And, and it, wow, praise God. Wow. Thanks, Mike. Hi, guys. I'm Kirk Rundell. I know that uh, usually when you come here, you see Pat and Teresa. But we had determined a while ago that the Church on the Street format would not be a format at all. It would be a constant uh, Neapolitan of change and flavor. And so, anyway, it gives uh, other people an opportunity to share the Word of God and share what God's showing them. So my name is Kirk Rundell. I'm one of the elders here, but I also am very privileged to be able to speak to you guys. Now, I need to tell you before I get into this word that last week when I talked to Pat and told him I'd like to, to have the opportunity to teach, I had a, a subject in mind. I had a set of scriptures in mind, 
And throughout the week, I'm just plugging along in that, that uh, line of thinking. About Thursday, Thursday night to be exact, I'm just kind of flopping through the Bible. I call it Bible roulette. I wasn't really looking for anything specific. And I found myself in the Old Testament. And all of a sudden, something just kept jumping off the page at me that I had never realized before. And as I was looking at that, it's like, God, is this where you want me to go with what you would like to say to these people? Not what I want to say, but what you want to say, which ultimately is what I'd like to see happen anyway, because if I'm talking, big deal. But if God speaks, I think it changes hearts and lives. So anyway, I'll share with you what it is that the Lord has revealed to me this week. We're all familiar with the Ten Commandments, and the first part of when God started to give the Ten Commandments to Moses kind of meshed into two different things. He said, Hero Israel, Hero Israel, your Lord your God is one. And he went on to talk to them about, he says, I'm the God that has delivered you from the bondage of Egypt and the bondage of sin. And then he said this, you shall have no other God before me. You'll have no other gods before me. And typically, I think when people read that, they look at it like, God is in this lineup, and God's number one, and then you can have your gods of football or possession or whatever. But actually what that means is God's before him. He's saying, nor the God in my face. And since God sees everything and since God is everywhere, that pretty much takes care of all of creation, that there's no other gods that are supposed to be even behind God in second place. So why am I telling you this? It's because I need you to understand that the message that I'm about to give you, you need to keep in mind about there are no second-place gods with God. There's one God, and that's it. Nobody's in second place to him. Mark, can you put up that little two-word blurb? Dear diary, how many of you guys realize that the Bible is a diary? Anybody realize that? It's written about you, and it's written for you. It's your diary. Now, some people would think of that and go, no, no, the, the Word of God is the prophecy of the forecoming of Jesus. It's like, yes, it is. But even through all those prophecies and through all those stories through the Old Testament, what God is doing is He's showing us ourselves. And the interesting thing about a diary is, actually, it's defined as, in the dictionary, it's a writing of events, experiences, and observations. But the interesting thing about this diary is that you didn't write it because you couldn't write it. It's too honest. And that's the thing that makes this such an awesome diary for us because, you know, the, the girl who's got the crush on the guy at school, it's her deepest thoughts that she's putting in there, and nobody else is supposed to see that. Well, what God did in his amazing way is he put all of our thoughts, all of our characters, all of our attitudes, all of our personalities, and he wrapped it up into those 2,000 pages. So what he's doing when it's a diary, it's about me. It's specifically written, that's Kirk's diary. But it's also Pat's. It's also Teresa. It's Mark's. Everybody who cracks this book with the understanding that God wrote their diary for them, they will see themselves in it. And something that I had put in my notes here is that this diary, it's so raw and so effective, it offends us. And I can't tell you the number of times in my own life, in my Christian walk, that this Bible has offended me. Is this where I'm getting the feedback from? Um, and it's good that it offends me because I think what it does is it reveals myself to me in a way I don't want to see me. And 
I, I know a lot of people have told me this over the years. I can't understand the Bible. It doesn't make sense to me, especially the Old Testament. It's all this gobbledygook of confusing stories, and I just can't get into it. Well, I want to upgrade your thinking on this a little bit. If you start to read the Bible as your diary and seeing yourselves as those people, you will see yourself a lot different. And I just jotted down a, a couple of quick statements here, like the, the nation of Israel. We all know, okay, they were in bondage to the Egypt or to the Egyptians. God came along, rescued them out of there. Egypt is a type and symbol of sin. Well, that shows me that God rescued me from my sin. And then he takes them through the wilderness, and they digress, and they serve him, and then they rebel against him, and they're stiff-necked, and then they're honest. And so, again, I see myself. I've done the same thing with my walk with the Lord. So when it's showing me Israel, it's showing me myself. The scribes and the Pharisees in the New Testament, they're all religious, right? Well, God's showing me me because he's showing me in the times of my life when I thought I was somebody, when my righteousness was better than yours. And he showed me how he despised that. He shows me about the, the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus. I put Jesus on the cross. You guys put Jesus on the cross. So guess what? You are the Roman soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross. He showed me that when Mary Magdalene was at the tomb and the day that Jesus rose, that joy when she realized that was Jesus standing there, that's the same joy that you and I have. When we come to the revelation that, yes, Jesus Christ is a risen Savior. So can you see the point of what I'm trying to say here is that this word is our diary because we are written throughout it. So no more should you look at this and go, oh, these are just old stories about 2,000, 6,000 years ago. It's like, no, there's a, there's a, they're as relevant as today for our heart if we will let God be that raw and exposing God that he wants to be for us, okay? I want to take, well, let me cover one more quick thing here. In the book of Romans, uh, Paul said that the things that were written beforehand are for our learning. So I know a lot of people will say they will only read the letters in red in the Bible. You are missing a whole lot of meat when you just decide you're just going to read the red letter edition only. So I encourage you, let the New Testament speak to you. Let the Old Testament speak to you. Use that whole diary. There, there's no need to go and just pick and choose what sounds good to you, but let it all speak to you because it, every bit of you wants to be changed on the inside, okay? I'm going to take what seems to be like a little rabbit trail here for a second, and it's it's kind of like a bowling ball. It's going to kind of swing wide toward the gutter, but then it's going to come back and make its mark. So if you kind of follow along with what I'm going with here, it'll make sense at the end. During the times that the kings ruled over Israel and Judea, there was 42 different kings. Now, you've got to remember in the beginning when there was three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, who were actually kings over the entire province. So they didn't understand or they didn't have to face the division between the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah because those three kings had full reign over the entire province. Well, after those three kings, what happened is there became a division between the two kingdoms of Judah and of Israel. And if you go through and you read through the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles, it talks about how these kings live their lives. And this was the thing that on that Thursday night that I was stumbling across, and all of a sudden I was amazed. But there was 42 different kings separated between the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And oftentimes they were in alliance with each other. Sometimes they were in conflict with each other. But all in all, 42 different kings. Of these 42 kings, 
33 were evil in the sight of God. Pretty poor percentage. Out of the remaining nine that were considered good kings who did what was right in the sight of God, two got A-plus scores. They did something that was beyond the norm of what the remaining seven kings did. So keep in mind, you've got 33 evil kings. You have nine good kings with two of them having stellar performances. Well, the seven good kings that kind of got less than that A-plus score, it states in there what they had done wrong. And one of them we already know pretty good, it's, or pretty well. It's the story where uh, David had the adulterous affair with Bathsheba and then killed her husband to hide the fact that she was pregnant with his child. And pretty torrid story. but So that was one of the kings. So now we have six remaining kings. And I could go through and just, you're, you're going to catch the pattern, but all the remaining of those, of those six kings had this statement written after them. I'll just use Asa. It said, And Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, but the high places were not removed. goes through another chapter. And Jehoshaphat did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for the people offered and burned incense in the the high places. And Jehoshaphat did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but the high places were not removed. And Joash was 25 when he began to reign, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, howbeit the high places were not taken away. And on and on and on. I'm not even going to, you can see what's happening here. Every one of these kings had the same thing that they did wrong. They did what was right in the sight of the Lord, however, except, but, they didn't take away these high places. Well, I started looking at this. It's like, God, what are these high places that it keeps mentioning in here? And the way the Bible dictionaries describe this, they were locations for serving gods, and they were typically on a higher mound or a hill or a mountain. They were something that was elevated, and they used to serve their gods there. They used to do ritualistic acts, whether it's sacrificing humans, animals, orgies, uh, prayers, burning incense, offering wines, offering meats, whatever it was, they would do them in these high places. Now, keep in mind, the high place in itself was not the wicked, the wicked thing because when Noah, after the flood in the mountains of Ararat, as soon as the ground was dry, he set up an altar and burned in, and made sacrifices to God, and it was very acceptable to him. Also with Abraham, Abraham was told, go to Mount Moriah in a place that I'll show you and sacrifice your son there. So keep in mind, it's not the fact that you're going to a location. It's who you're serving at that location that was the wickedness, okay? So let's bring it up to date here, and it's like, what would our modern high places be today? Well, we already know just from what Jesus tells us, he talks about not being high-minded. So forget the physical locations, just look at ourselves. We know that high-mindedness is, God despises that in us, it's pride. And that's that's one of the first uh, high-place altars in which I think we, uh, we disappoint God. Some of the other places that are high-mindedness are in celebrity worship. You know, we're in a day and age where People are our idols. It's, it's no longer just some 
thing made of wood or stone. It's people we idolize. We idolize their life. We idolize the stuff they have, what they've accomplished. Have no other God before your God. Remember, the Lord, that was his first commandment to us. Another thing is our possessions. Now, we're in a very interesting time in our world, especially in the United States of America, because our possessions are being taken out right from under our feet. I can't say that that's all a bad thing in the sense that not to lose homes and and jobs and that, but I'm talking about all our goodies, all all the stuff that defined who we were. I, I can't say that's all bad. And I know some of you are probably gnashing your teeth at me, but, you know, God cares about what happens in here with you, not how comfortable your couch is, okay? And I understand we need shelter, we need clothes, we need food, and God is faithful to provide those things. We don't need Nintendos. We don't need a new car. We don't need all the frills and luxuries that define who we are. Those are our modern-day high places. Also another high place is ourself, our own vanity, how we put the importance of who we are above everything else. I was convicted when Pat was telling the story about moving this guy, moving that family to help them out because it made me stop and think. It's like how often do I let God interrupt my daily routine? How often do I get pulled off my path to do something else for somebody else? So I'm speaking to myself when I talk about these high places, okay? I'm not preaching to you. I've been convicted. I was telling Kathy Levins. This message convicted me a dozen times already. Another thing of high-mindedness, and this might seem like an odd one to you, is how we entertain ourselves. What occupies the majority of your time? It can just simply be your your flat-screen TV on the wall. But whatever it is that's consuming who you are, whatever it is that's on the altar of of you is what you really have to look at. And um, that's the one thing I want you guys to do today. Before you leave here, please, no, not please, you need to look at your high places. You need to look and see if there is a God before the Lord God that needs to come off of that high place. Now, I want to read you a scripture out of Deuteronomy that this is how God views high places. He's talking to Moses to tell the people in Deuteronomy 12.1, He says, now I'll tell you the laws and teachings that you have to obey as long as you live. Your ancestors worship the Lord, and he is giving you this land. But the nations that live there worship other gods. So after you capture the land, you must completely destroy their places of worship on mountains and hills and in the shades of large trees. Wherever these nations worship their gods, you must tear down their altars break their sacred stones, burn their sacred poles, and smash their idols to pieces. Destroy these places of worship so completely that no one will ever remember they were there. Don't worship the Lord your God in the way those nations worshiped their gods. Anybody in here think they have a good vocabulary? Okay. You know, I like to throw these little things at you. There's a word called an iconoclast. In Webster's Dictionary, iconoclast is a person who destroys religious objects or images and opposes their use in worship. It also is a person who destroys acceptable beliefs, customs, and reputations. 
God told the nation of Israel to be iconoclasts when he sent them into the promised land. I want you to destroy what they have established and establish what I'm telling you to do. Now, I know for some people this kind of gets their dander up because they're like, whoa, 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 I know where you're going with this. You're going to push this Christianity way of life on me. You're going to take away my fun, my rights, my freedoms. But I'm going to tell you something. Your very freedoms are what enslave you. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? But it's not. What I mean by that is this. If you give a child every right to do everything they want to do within the realm of what comes into their mind, they will be a corrupt child. If you give an adult the freedom to indulge in anything that they want to indulge in without limit, they will be corrupt. Because we, our diary already shows us we lack the self-control to have those liberties. So God, our Father, has said, I need you to be an iconoclast. I need you to be, that word actually in the Greek means an image breaker. I need you to break the images of these things that are going to corrupt you. They're not to take away your freedom. They're to give you freedom. Because you can ask anybody who's ever been in bondage to drugs or sex or alcohol or any of those addictive natures if they feel like they're free, and they are not. They are imprisoned. So don't think for one second when I'm telling you about being an iconoclast and and breaking down these things and utterly destroying these things that I'm trying to put you in a box and say this is how you have to live your life. God already knows what your box looks like, but he also knows the high places that are in your box that need to go away so that you can live a full life in him. Okay? So if your dander's all up about being iconoclast, settle down. It's a good thing because God in your diary He's already shown you through the, the habits of the kings. They did what was right in my eyes, but they didn't get rid of that. And it came back to bite them, and it always will. Now, if we look at, okay, the iconoclast of, of the days of old was pretty easy. Go in, smash up, break up, burn up, do whatever you got to do. But how do we do it today? How do we become a modern-day iconoclast? And I have it into four different categories. The first thing is we need to recognize what that high place is. And for most of us, it's, it's not hard to see. Um, the second thing you need to do is you have to be determined and dedicated to deal with whatever it is. It is so easy to say, I'll just push that aside, and therefore it's out of, it's out of the way. But remember what God said to the Israelites. He said, go in there and utterly destroy it so that no one will even remember it was there. So pushing it aside doesn't work. You have to be dedicated to the destruction of it. Next thing you need to do is you need to remove all of the objects, mindsets, whatever is attached to that has got to be utterly removed. Something I thought was very interesting, uh, the two good kings, the A-plus kings, one was Hezekiah and one was Josiah. Josiah was so zealous about getting rid of all these the high places and all this idol worship, what he did is he took it outside the city of Jerusalem, had it burned into a pile of ashes. Then he took all the ashes and sent it to a a city called Bethel. Why Bethel? Bethel was the kind of the Mecca for Baal worship. So he took all the ashes to Bethel, and then he destroyed the temples of Baal with those ashes right there. So he sent a very strong statement. I'm not cleaning out just Jerusalem. 
I'm cleaning out my province, and I'm going to go to the heart of where this, this, the pinnacle of the high places are, and I'm going to burn that to the ground, and I'm going to put all the ashes of all that, and I'm going to heap it on top of it. And he continued on. He went to the places, the graves of the high priests that used to serve these false gods, and he put their bones on these piles too. He was just unrelenting as far as destroying these high places. And it was very honoring to God. But God is asking us to do that same thing. He's like, don't just push it aside. Utterly destroy it. And the last thing that has to happen is never rebuild it. And this is kind of a sad story. But Hezekiah, he was one of those A-plus kings. He was very diligent about getting rid of all the high places. Well, his son Manasseh built him right back up after his death. And it's like very, very sad. But you have to make sure that there's no Manasseh sneaking in the back door that's going to try to rebuild what your Hezekiah or your Josiah has already done. All right? I almost ask, is there any questions? <laughs> that's, that's my small classroom mentality. Okay. How much time do I have left, Therese? Five minutes? Okay. Well, I kind of wanted to give you guys some time to chew on this after the fact, but I don't know how it's going to work out. But, well, if I run a little long, I apologize. You guys know who Carrie Nation is? She's the lady with the axe that used to, she was really one of the prohibitionists about getting rid of alcohol. City of Holly has a festival every year for her. Um, do you guys remember the Supreme Court case, Roe versus Wade? That's the one that made legalized abortion. Do you guys remember Madeline O'Hare? She's the woman back in the 1960s who took prayer out of school. These people all have famous names, and there's, there's a, a famous event attached to what they did to our social Sell, or to our, our social systems, some of them very negative, some of them I guess you can be positive, depends on which side you stand on the fence with. But the thing with those iconoclasts is this isn't Viva the Revolution, let's go out and change. This is in here, okay? So I'm not going to go to any individual and say, okay, give me your dirt, we're going to start burning your altars and crushing up the dust and sending it to Bethel, it's not that. It's you and God dealing with you. So it's got to be a very sincere observation of your own heart. And I'm not even expecting that even today that your high places will be revealed to you. But I do believe that if you sincerely will come to the Lord and, and just sit at his feet and say, show me, he, he will be faithful. Remember the diary that we didn't write that he wrote about us? He very, very much wants you to see your high places. Now, I want to read you a story, and I'll wrap it up with this. To me, this is probably one of the saddest stories in the entire Bible, and it's in the book of Jeremiah. And I'll give you just a quick preview of it. It's Jeremiah 44, and I'm starting in verse 16. What had happened was Jeremiah was a prophet during the time of Israel and Judah's great relapse into sin. They were a very stiff-necked, rebellious people, serving other gods, uh, 
their nations were continually under attack from the enemy. They were constantly losing lands and people and lives, and it just wasn't a pretty sight. So Jeremiah had gone to them and told them to repent and that God would have mercy on them and God would restore them. And he was trying to give them a future. And this is how they responded to Jeremiah. And I'm reading it from the uh, the contemporary English version because I think it, it, it speaks more our language. They said, Jeremiah, what do we care what you speak in the name of the Lord? We refuse to listen. We have promised to worship the queen of heaven, and that's exactly what we're going to do. We will burn incense and offer sacrifices and wine to her, just as we, our ancestors, our kings, and our leaders did when we lived in Jerusalem and in the towns of Judea. We had plenty of food back then. We were well off, and nothing bad ever happened to us. But since the time we stopped burning incense and offering wine and sacrifices to her, we have been dying from war and hunger. Then the women said, When we lived in Judah, we worshipped the Queen of Heaven and offered sacrifices of wine and special loaves of bread shaped like her. And our husbands knew what we were doing, and they approved of it. Then Jeremiah said said to the crowd, Don't you think the Lord knew that you and your ancestors and your leaders and your kings and the rest of the people were burning incense to other gods in Jerusalem and everywhere else in Judah? And when he could no longer put up with your disgusting sin, he placed a curse on your land and turned it into a desert as it is to this day, which is true. If you, go, if you, can, if you see the land of, around Jerusalem, it's a desert. He said, these disasters happened because you worshipped other gods and rebelled against the Lord by refusing to obey him or following his laws and teachings. Sad story. These people knowingly are saying, we are not going to serve the Lord. We are going to serve what served us. We are going to serve the thing that made our life easy for us. We are going to serve the queen of heaven because when we did, life was good for us. So I I can't imagine having that attitude to say, Jeremiah, what do we care what you speak in the Lord's name, we're not going to listen. You guys, I have been guilty of being the same people in that crowd that said that to the Lord. Hey, when I did this, it was good for me. When I did things my way, I didn't, I wasn't hurting, I wasn't lacking, things were good. Well, we already know what it tells us in the New, the New Testament. When Peter was talking about, he says, don't be surprised about the afflictions that come upon you because they're happening to your brothers and sisters all over the world who serve the Lord. But see, if we take on the mentality of those people that were confronting Jeremiah, God does not change. He will not honor our high places of our little gods that are not even supposed to be anywhere before his face. So you guys, I ask you, let God search your heart. Let your diary be read in such a way that God really shows you yourself. Don't read it like a history lesson. It's not. It's your life today and now. And I can tell you that God will fill in the gaps where you don't get it because that's why he gave you the Holy Spirit. All right? So, word of the day, iconoclast, an image breaker. We're all called to be that, okay? So let's be that. Um, Dave, you want to just come up and give these guys some background? Or do we need to get out of here? I don't know what the...
Okay. You guys, I, I could easily say, okay, wrap it up, head on out, but I'm not. I would ask that you would give this some time just to sit here and just let this sink in. All right? Keep your bodies comfortable, but let your mind and your spirit be uncomfortable right now, okay, and deal with this. And if you feel like it's an altar or a high place that's bigger than you can burn down, there's some great fire starters right here and among you that will help you to tear that stuff down, okay? So let them do it. So that's all I have. But now the Lord, I think, is going to begin to do a work in you. So let him do it.